Well, I gotta be straight with you, Norm. Norm. I'm not looking for anything long-term. I just want to make enough bucks to get the brakes of my car fixed and build up a little stake for L.A. I'm a singer. But I wouldn't mind filling in until you found somebody permanent. I just won't be staying around too long. No one ever does. Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since the middle of the 1990s. You can read all of my written work, over 4,000 to choose from, at Quipster.net. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the link to my other podcast, very similar to this one, but it covers films of the 1990s and newer films as well that tie in with those films of the 90s as well as some of the 80s. Eventually, I'll get to those. It's called To the 90s and Beyond. You can find the link at quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the third part of this five-part series, looking at Psycho, the franchise, at least the original Psycho, as well as films that spun off from them during the 1980s. I already looked at Psycho and Psycho 2, so of course I'm going to follow it up with 1986's Psycho 3. Psycho 3... As you can imagine, it's an R-rated film. It does have strong, bloody violence, sexuality, nudity, and language. The runtime is an hour and 33 minutes. This brings back, once again, Anthony Perkins, along with Diana Scarwood, Jeff Fahey, Roberta Maxwell, and Hugh Gillen. The director this time out is, for the first time in his career, Anthony Perkins. The screenplay credited to Charles Edward Pogue. Now, back in August of 1984, just a year after the release and subsequent success of Psycho 2, Universal greenlit the next entry in the Psycho franchise, Psycho 3. Psycho 2's director, Richard Franklin, as well as its screenwriter, Tom Holland, they declined to return. They'd already moved on to other things. So Universal chairman Frank Price reached out to this promising young screenwriter named Charles Edward Pogue. Pogue had really impressed the studio with his script that he was shopping around for the remake of The Fly, and Universal wanted Pogue to develop a story idea for Psycho 3. So Pogue really didn't know what to do. He revisited Hitchcock's Psycho. This was a a movie that he had seen as a teenager. He vaguely remembered it. He remembered it was a good movie, but not much of the details. But his second watch, now as an adult and as a screenwriter, completely blew him away. He found Psycho a rich, textured, undeniably great film definitely worthy of investing time trying to replicate in some form or fashion. Pogue next watched Richard Franklin's 1983 sequel, Psycho 2, and Pogue found it above average for a sequel anyway, but he did dislike a few things. One was it occasionally dipped into sleazy slasher theatrics, but the main problem that he had with Psycho 2 was it tampered too much with Psycho's mythology. It suggested that the domineering woman who raised and engaged in this incestuous relationship with Norman Bates that eventually drove him to jealous murder was not Norman's real mother, Norma Bates. Instead, mother was now some woman called Emma Spool, who was a complete stranger working with Norman at the diner in Psycho 2, who we find had given him up as a baby to her sister Norma after going into an asylum. Polk thought that if he did Psycho 3, one of his main missions was to fix that error in changing the mythology back to the way that Hitchcock had intended. So a week later, Pogue returned to Universal and he pitched the execs there with two ideas. 
His first and primary idea was dependent on Janet Lee wanting to return to the Psycho series. In this idea, Janet Lee was going to play a psychiatrist who takes over observing Norman's transition into society for the deceased Dr. Raymond that we see killed in Psycho 2. The psychiatrist's uncanny resemblance to Psycho's Marion Crane eventually triggers Norman's amorous feelings and, in turn, mother's homicidal tendencies. If Janet Lee declined returning, Pogue's idea would change a bit. Instead of a psychiatrist, it would be a runaway nun who resembles a younger Marion Crane, as she appeared in Psycho, who finds her way to the Bates Motel and then connects with Norman as a fellow repressed soul. Universal execs immediately dismissed the Janet Lee angle. They thought that Janet Lee was just too old to appeal to modern horror fans. She was no longer a box office draw. They thought that a young wayward nun was going to better provide Norman with somebody that he had the capacity to love. This was a woman that was going to be as broken and insecure about herself as he is. And they also felt, above all that, audiences were going to feel tragedy for this young woman when Norman eventually kills her, which... If he does kill her, that meant that Pogue had to change his proposed original ending because in his original ending, Norman Bates was not going to be the killer. The killer was going to be revealed as the motel's assistant manager who had become neurotically obsessed with Norman, and he started engaging in doing copycat murders around the motel. Now, Pogue was hired to write a complete script based off of this idea. They gave him the green light, and he decided he was going to structure it with Norman as the killer, including tragically murdering the nun that he grows to love. And the nun's death itself was going to force Norman to finally confront his mother, figuratively killing her in the end. And Norman might be physically captured by the police, but his mind finally was going to be freed. And he would be just Norman again. So kind of a happy ending within the tragedy. Pogue's intent here was to recapture, as much as he could anyway, the same tone, the same mood, the same psychology of Hitchcock's original masterwork. He wanted to avoid the gorier, bloodier kills that was so typical of modern slashers in the 1980s. Audiences, he felt, should be frightened by what they don't see, as he was when he watched one of his favorite horror films, the 1942 version of Cat People. He wanted to bring it back to class and not try to dip in too much into crass. So Pogue's completed script sets the story three weeks after the events of Psycho 2. Norman hires this rogue musician named Dwayne Duke as his temporary assistant manager. There's also this new patron staying in cabin number one, a spiritually faltering nun with this uncanny resemblance to Marion Crane named Maureen Coyle. She even has the same initials. Feelings of attraction began to sprout between Norman and Maureen. But, of course, with the jealous mother controlling Norman's homicidal impulses, that really does not bode well for Maureen's longevity. And meanwhile, further kind of heating things up is this tenacious reporter named Tracy Venable who comes looking for the whereabouts of the missing Emma Spool from Psycho 2, and she's sure that Norman is definitely hiding something. Now, one hiccup did immediately emerge when Universal tried to push forward with Pogue's script for making Psycho 3. Anthony Perkins was miffed with Universal still because they had never paid him, he felt. What they owed him, they had talked down his salary to do Psycho 2 from his million dollars to just accepting a percentage deal, and he never got even a dime of the percentage, even though supposedly it was a very lucrative film. So Universal decided that they were going to pay him what he thought that was fair just to be able to make several offers 
for him to return to Psycho 3, but even then he would not budge, not without approving a finished script, because he found that just the idea of this film from this unknown screenwriter of Norman romancing a suicidal nun, that was beyond absurd. So Universal told Pogue he would have to complete a script and he needed to hook Perkins in with the script to make sure that he got a really juicy part or that part was going to have to be rewritten to be something less commercial like Norman's nephew or something like that. Luckily, though, Perkins loved Pogue's completed script. He found it to be beautifully written, tightly plotted, very inspiring to him with all of its strength and eloquence written in. Perkins decided to make Universal, at that point, a counteroffer. He would accept their most recent offer monetarily, but he also wanted to be Psycho 3's director. Perkins' thirst for directing had been around with him a few years. It came after his friend Richard Benjamin convinced MGM to let him helm a 1982 film called My Favorite Year. Benjamin had pitched MGM on the fact that he had an affinity with the material that nobody else possessed. Now, although Universal had previously turned down Perkins' offer to direct Psycho 2 under the same circumstances, that was because Richard Franklin already had the gig, but Psycho 3 had no attached director yet, so the time was now to push for the director's chair. Now or never, Perkins told Universal he would direct FOC free of charge above his acting fee. Universal at this point felt they had really little choice if they wanted to push forward with Psycho 3 and have it be a big success. So they accepted his offer on condition that Perkins remain on schedule, under budget, and always allow them creative control, or they were going to remove him from the director's chair. Perkins agreed. Now, Perkins had some experience directing before, not films, but stage plays. So he felt as far as handling actors goes, he was pretty much confident there. He knew very little about the technical side of filmmaking, so he decided to play it safe. He was going to shoot as straightforwardly as possible. He wanted to keep it from getting too fancy. He wanted to avoid unnecessary, unflattering comparisons to Hitchcock anyway. And with Psycho, you know, Hitchcock already benefited from working with a blank canvas, so the best Perkins was ever going to be able to do is add a little bit of shade and color to whatever had existed before. Perkins did, though, decide to do some homework. He purchased several books on film directing. Most he found too technical, but his favorite ones offered philosophy and how the director should proceed with handling things and how he should approach filmmaking. The best advice that he found was when he read that the director's energy while he's making a film often sets the tempo for the energy that appears on the screen. So Perkins determined, as a director, he was going to be directing as if he were having the time of his life. He also liked the philosophy of, as a first-time director, surrounding himself with filmmaking veterans, veterans who were going to help him out of sticky situations and to solve those inevitable problems that arise. Hilton Green, that was key. He was the first assistant director on Psycho. He also happened to be the line producer on Psycho 2. He already had all the experience he needed. He was offered the chance to return. He didn't want to initially, but because Perkins was going to be at the helm and because Perkins assured him that there was going to be less gore and blood than Psycho 2, which is something that Green found very uncomfortable, Green did sign on. Now, Green helped him secure some of the rest of the uh, technical crew, including the Oscar-winning production designer who worked with Green and Hitchcock on several films, Henry Bumstead. Meanwhile, Universal offered the services of Clint Eastwood's favorite cinematographer, Brewster Tease, to come in and shoot the film. One thing that uh, Universal did kind of scoff at when they hired Sir Tease is that Perkins suggested to him that they film in black and white. 
That was something they also denied Richard Franklin from doing for Psycho 2. This was kind of commercial suicide, they felt, to shoot a film in black and white. And Perkins said, okay, well, if he must shoot in color, he wanted it to look as much as black and white as possible. So he asked Ortiz to try to capture a film noir vibe, very akin to the kind of thing that he saw in a favorite film that he had seen recently, the Coen Brothers debut film, Blood Simple, back in 1985. Perkins was so enamored of Blood Simple that he brought all of the cast and crew into a theater, not once, but a few times to screen it to try to keep everybody on the same page of what he was trying to achieve with Psycho 3. One thing Perkins did learn from Hitchcock, he wasn't going to emulate him in style, but he wanted to capture his technique of storyboarding the script in advance. So he hired veteran artist Gene Johnson to come in and do all of the storyboarding. In fact, he told them to storyboard the entire script from beginning to end, something that not even Hitchcock did. Now, when it came to working with the screenwriter, Pogue, who he always kept around, Perkins found it very easy to relate to him. They spoke a lot of the same language because Pogue was a former stage actor himself. So they went through page by page the script. For the most part, Perkins said that what he had in the script was dynamite, no need to change it. But there was a couple of things that he had changed. One was Maureen's journey from the convent to the motel he thought should open the film instead of being introduced right off the bat to Norman and his uh, taxidermy of some birds. And the reason why Perkins wanted to do that, because that would be similar to Marion's journey in Psycho. We first sympathize with Maureen before she gets to the hotel and we meet Norman Bates. They did also argue toward the end of the film over the manner of Maureen's eventual death. Because in Pogue's original script, Norman kisses Maureen, and while he's kissing her, he stabs her. Now, Perkins insisted that Norman, no, he would never knowingly kill an innocent, at least not in his Norman persona. He would have to be mother to do that. Pogue countered that at this point, Norman really couldn't distinguish between himself and mother anymore. That was kind of the main gist of the murder itself. But Perkins assured him audiences would never accept such a character departure from Norman. So they decided to brainstorm if Maureen's death must come at Norman's hands, it had to be some sort of accident. So they came up with a compromise. They would pay homage to Arbogast's death in Psycho by having Maureen tumbling down the stairs through an accident altercation with Norman, and she would poetically get impaled on the Cupid sculpture that had always been there in the first two films anyway. And that would symbolize love as death in the Bates residence, killed by Cupid. For the role of Maureen Coyle, they hired Diana Scarwood, an Oscar nominee from uh, Inside Moves, as well as a respected actress at the time. Scarwood was not a horror fan. She didn't really want to do a horror film. In fact, she had a restless night following reading Pogue's script, but she eventually did accept the role because she resolved that her character was not involved in the scariest and goriest scenes of the movie anyway. She was supposed to perform nude in the film, at least during one scene when Norman is staring at her through the peephole, but she was told that she could have a body double. That a body double, by the way, was eventual B-movie scream queen Brink Stevens. Scarwood saw Psycho 3 beyond just being a horror film. She felt that there was more here, a psychological study of people in pain, their inability to fit happily into this world of normacy. She also felt that Pogue here was exploring deeper themes regarding the lightness and the darkness in all of our minds, how the walls that we create to try to protect ourselves often threaten to destroy our very humanity. Maureen and Norman here, they're both orphans. They're both tormented by fatal mistakes of the past who find peace with each other. 
they view each other as somebody who understands their own particular sadness and sensitivity that nobody else seems to get. Perkins himself had his own philosophy about Norman Bates. He viewed the saga of Norman Bates really at this point as part of American homespun folklore, the dark side of a Norman Rockwell painting, so to speak. The psycho films he felt were tragedies, not horror films. Norman's crimes come from love, not hate, his inability to handle those feelings of love. Audiences sympathize because Norman, he would find happiness, at least in these sequels, if only others stopped provoking him and pigeonholing him in ways that continue to stoke the impulses that he is supposed to be healing from. Roberta Maxwell here plays investigative reporter Tracy Venable. She's out looking to expose Norman for Mrs. Spool's disappearance. Perkins particularly liked Maxwell, a Canadian actor who performed with him 10 years prior on Broadway in Equus. Now, Perkins, by Universal's request, did audition several younger actresses, but in the end, he fought with Universal to hire Maxwell because her age, which was their main complaint about her, that her age increased her desperation for a hot scoop to boost her languishing career, and it would make the film better with somebody of her caliber, not only as an actor, but also her age as a character. Virginia Gregg, she's the only other person besides Anthony Perkins to return from the original Psycho. She voiced, or she was one of the voices of Mother in the original film. She also voiced Mother in Psycho 2. She's returning here for the third time. Greg commended Perkins particularly for his direction for Psycho 3 because he gave her instruction that gave Mother additional nuance. Instead of bullying Norman and being kind of a harpy, this version of Mother knows she has power over him, so she coerces him, cajoles him, needles him to do her bidding. Norman eventually, though, in the end, finds the strength in love to finally fight back. Now, to evoke the Psycho shower scene's vulnerability without copycatting Psycho, Pogue concocted similar vulnerable murder sequences. One involves a bathtub. That's the most direct reference to the original psycho murder. There was that claustrophobic murder that did take place in a phone booth, as well as a woman on a toilet. Uh, how far we've come, a toilet was not even deemed by censors as worthy of being shown in the original psycho. Hitchcock really had to fight for that. But now, in 1986, not only was a toilet going to be shown on the screen, but a woman was going to be sitting on it and also heard to be doing her business before her throat gets slashed there. As romantic counter-programming, the release date for Psycho 3 was Valentine's Day, 1986. You can imagine taking your date... What a romantic evening would result, you suspect. <laughs> Universal wanted a book adaptation to uh, coincide with the release of Psycho, but Psycho author Robert Block still retained literary rights to his characters. So they went to Block. Block declined. He felt that he had already done a book called Psycho 2 that was unrelated to the film. So writing Psycho 3 unrelated to the books he had already done seemed counterintuitive, especially since he had plans to write other Psycho books, which he eventually did in 1990 as Psycho House. Perkins brought back from Psycho 2 his stand-in there to play Norman in rehearsals because he wanted to see how scenes played with somebody else playing Norman so he could direct the scene without actually being in the scene. Now, Perkins was able to turn off Norman's persona on and off effortlessly after playing him for so many years, but Kurt Paul really did have a lot of difficulty doing the transition there. 
which seemed a little bit unnerving to the other actors, but he also irked a lot of the other actors, not only by being kind of a busybody on the set, but he was persistently bragging about his importance to the film as if he was one of the main stars and his close connection with Perkins, who he was trying to gain and carry a lot of favor with the others because he was a friend of Perkins. Now, Perkins, as far as his experience as a director, he called directing analogous to wrestling a dragon with a 100 heads. But he never let on that he was in over his head to anybody else. The cast and crew found Perkins a great thinker, an avid listener, a very sensitive gentleman, a generous collaborator, a paternal figure on and off the set, complimentary, very encouraging. He was always looking to help everybody be their best. Now, the only person he did confide his anxieties to was Bruce Ortiz, the cinematographer, And usually that was when somebody seemed to be obviously falling short in their performances. He wanted to be able to try to frame things in a way that would overcome some of the shortcomings in those performances. Perkins always wanted to project positive vibes because he wanted to achieve those positive results on the screen as he had learned in his readings. He also always answered fan mail. He sent off countless autographs during the making of this film. One thing he had everybody do in the cast was whenever the Universal Studios tour trams arrived while they were filming any scenes outside, he had everybody in the cast wave back at them because his philosophy was that every butt in a tram seat was somehow going to translate to becoming a butt in a theater seat. Now, as far as composers go, Universal offered a slew of very well-known composers for the Psycho 3 score, but Perkins decided to look to Blood Simple yet again because he really loved the work of Carter Burwell. Now, Burwell happened to be pleasantly surprised, not only because he had basically retired from doing scores, he felt that he was just going to go back to his day job of computer animation work, but he happened to also be a very big fan of Anthony Perkins as an actor. So he gladly talked to Perkins about coming back to do another score. This would be Burwell's first work for a Hollywood studio, and it completely resurrected his career as a film composer that still continues to this day a happy ending for Carter Burwell. Perkins told Burwell that his score did not need at all to resemble either of the first two Psycho films. He should just do his own thing. Burwell, because they had a lot of money, he was granted the use of a very fancy synclavier synthesizer to sample tones and sounds to be used for his score. He eschewed sampling real instruments to use for that score, but he did incorporate vocal elements from Japanese no productions, play productions, to evoke a strange, haunting feeling to the music. And he also combined that with an all-female and an all-boys choir to give a very disorienting and unique effect for Psycho 3. The only change that Perkins requested from anything that Carter Burwell did was the musical cues that were used in scenes involving Norman and Maureen, He thought that they were overly schmaltzy and that they might make audiences unintentionally laugh. So he had Burwell tone down some of the the more romantic elements of their interactions. Burwell, being a fan of Perkins, knew that he had released pop albums in the 1950s. He suggested that Norman should be singing while he's at the piano to try to recapture that, that quality that he loved about Perkins. But Perkins felt very insecure about his voice by this point of his life. And he also felt very insecure about his piano playing, which he actually did do, he eventually told Burwell to dub over his piano playing in the end because of that self-consciousness. Now, in addition to the score, Universal wanted a pop song attached to Psycho 3 to make kind of a music video that would help promote the movie. This was very fashionable back then in uh, big releases, big studio releases, at least of the time. So Perkins 
did not want just any song. He wanted the song to connect with the movie itself. He wanted to also incorporate Burwell's composed theme, if they could, into the body of the pop song. So Burwell collaborated at that time with several rock artists to try to come up with something. Now Perkins nixed uh, the collaboration that Burwell did with Wall of Voodoo's Stan Ridgeway because he thought that the lyrics that Ridgeway came up with lyrics that really did not jive with the kind of portrayal of Norman that he wanted to project. So he declined that one. Universal canceled a collaboration that was done by Burwell with Oingo Boingo's Danny Elfman. Elfman, of course, was a burgeoning film composer in his own right. He had done uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure at the time, but still a pop music force at the time. Elfman and Burwell made a song that was kind of a, in rhythm with a slowed down version of Bernard Herrmann's shrieking shower scene violins from the original Psycho. Universal did not like that angle. So eventually Burwell decided, well, if nobody was going to agree on any particular direction for the pop song, he was going to resurrect the instrumental track that he had created with Steve Bray and David Sanborn for this sex scene in the middle of the film. He called it Scream of Love, although Scream of Love lacked crossover appeal. Universal still tried to promote it. They had Arthur Baker do a 12-inch dance remix of it. And they also shot a promotional music video, which eventually did get play on MTV on Halloween when Anthony Perkins was a guest VJ for a few hours that night. When the film was completed, Universal was still very high on Psycho 3's prospects. But after seeing the rough cut that Perkins had turned in, they wanted to up the commercial appeal. They wanted Perkins to reduce some of the sexuality. They wanted to add a lot more blood, more viscera, and to give the ending a shock twist. Now, Perkins had originally wanted all along to emulate Hitchcock by never showing a knife entering a body, at least until Norman takes on Mother toward the end of the film. He also was avoiding a lot of blood splattering all over the films. But not that Perkins was averse to blood. He enjoyed playing up a scene where Sheriff Hunt reaches into the motel's ice machine where Norman has stuffed a victim to suck on the bloody ice. But he wasn't originally intended to suck on bloody ice. Perkins requested actor Hugh Gillen to pop some of the uh, bloody ice into his mouth for one particular take. Gillen protested it, saying that was pretty juvenile, but Perkins encouraged him to do one take anyway, saying that he would not likely use it, but he did add it eventually to the final cut. The problem here was that Universal was worried that audiences, particularly teenagers, were going to be disappointed if they paid for a horror movie and they did not get the gory details whenever the murders occur, as they were getting from the original vibe for Perkins. So Perkins, because of his deal to give them creative control, he acquiesced to the studio's demands, so he reshot the murders with more graphic viscera. But he wanted them to be very quick. He did not want audiences to be cheering on Norman's tragic relapse into murder. So those reshoots took place. The release date was postponed from Valentine's Day to the July 4th weekend, a pretty prime time for releases for those pre-shoots. Prime real estate that suggested Universal still had those high expectations for a huge success once those changes were made. So high were they on the film's prospects that they ordered Perkins and Pogue after they were done with the reshoots to come up with an idea for Psycho 4. They were so sure it was going to be successful. Perkins reshot the toilet murder involving actress Kat Shea with makeup artist Mike Westmore brought in to rig a neck device that opened a slit in Shea's neck that would gush blood. Universal also wanted more blood for this uh, phone booth murder that takes place in the film. They added a lot more blood there. But they did want a sex scene that takes place between Dwayne Duke and the victim in the phone booth that precedes it to be toned down because they feared that adults would not bring their teenage kids if they found out that there was a lot of sex and nudity in the film. 
Now, Perkins, who had recently appeared in the, in the kinky thriller Crimes of Passion, he argued that displays of sexuality were the things that were going to be driving Norman mad. That was part of the hook here that was not necessarily just a prurient fantasy, but he did agree to a less is more approach and did some editing there to tone it a little bit down. Due to discomfort with frontal nudity, it was Jeff Fahey's idea to sit in a chair using lamps to try to obscure his own nudity. Universal also wanted that ending change. They wanted a Brian De Palma ending that left audiences completely shocked as they walked out of the theater. Pogue's original ending was very similar to how you see it play in the, in the theatrical cut. Norman proclaims that he's finally free as he's caught by Sheriff Hunt for his crimes. There was going to be an additional shot after that, a crane shot that pans up to the Bates house through the open window that overlooks the motel. It would reveal an empty rocking chair that's rocking back and forth without mother in it, symbolizing that she is finally gone. Perkins and Pogue did cycle through potential final shocks that they could draw in there somehow, including maybe Norman could kill one more time, the sheriff or the priest or the reporter that were standing nearby. None of those things seemed really satisfying. So they thought that the best idea that they could come up with was that the camera would follow Norman into the cop car. And in the back of the cop car, as they're driving away, Norman reveals that he possesses mother's severed mummified hand still with him. Now, Pogue hoped that Universal would realize that there was a contradiction there, not only because Norman had just proclaimed he was free from mother, but virtually everything leading up to it, this was kind of a complete undoing of that. So unfortunately, though, they did not change their mind. Universal seemed very content with this final twist. Perkins was also asked to reshoot some of the underwater scenes in the climax that they deemed too dark and murky to see the identity of the body. So a lot of the actors did have to come back to be bodies underwater there. Now, with all of the changes made, Universal was absolutely sure they were going to have a runaway hit here. They entered it into the Cannes Film Festival out of competition. They also paid $10,000 a month for this 70-foot-tall sign to be displayed at Times Square. They paid for Perkins to travel all over the country in person with advanced screenings to try to get the public interested word of mouth out there. He would be handing out Bates Motel key rings. He would hand out personal autographs. They also had a, a contest on USA Network for this weekend stay for two in the refurbished cabin one of the Bates Motel located right there on the Universal lot. The room was completely redone. It had a working shower, but the hole in the wall obviously was going to be patched up for those lucky winners. However... Despite all of Universal's feelings on the matter, they completely did not understand that the audiences that might have been there for Psycho 2 because of curiosity did not necessarily think that they needed to come back for another continuation of the Norman Bates saga. It all backfired. Critics and audiences were pretty mystified by all of the gratuitous violence, the very dark and moody tone that that incurred. They greeted Psycho 3 with indifference. It got a lot of negative reviews at the time and resulted in a poor box office performance. It debuted at number eight before falling completely out of the top 10 altogether by week two, yielding in the end only $14.5 million in the United States. And the failure also resulted in putting the kibosh on Pogue's idea for Psycho 4. By the way, Pogue's idea for Psycho 4, it was going to be a black comedy premise where Norman escapes after the asylum that he's put in where a lot, all kinds of radical therapy techniques are being conducted on him and everybody else. It burns down. Norman escapes with this mute girl inmate there in tow to the Bates Motel. The motel he finds has been converted into this mystery theme attraction that's now 
owned by this eccentric entrepreneur. It's drawing in crowds looking to participate in reenactments of the Motel and Bates house murders. But when the actor playing Norman Bates gets into a money dispute and quits the production, the real Norman Bates steps into the role. And that's the setup for the intended Psycho 4 that was never made because of the lack of success of Psycho 3. Although there is a fourth Psycho film, which I'll talk about at the end here. Perkins subsequently fell into a complete emotional funk. After the lack of success of Psycho 3, he even started apologizing to members of the cast and crew whenever he would run into them that they had worked so hard on this film that deserved so much better than what he could deliver as a new director. Which is kind of a tragedy in and of itself because the worst parts of Psycho 3 are not really his fault, is in my opinion. Because although it is uneven, Perkins does bring a quality style, a lot of symbolism to the proceedings. He pays occasional homage to Hitchcock, but does not overdo it. You have the opening scene in, Cal- in a California mission bell tower in which a nun falls for death. You know, Henry Bumstead, the production designer, also did work on Vertigo. The homage to Psycho's shower sequence here shocks and surprises. Mother strikes the intended victim with hopefulness here rather than horror. I think Pogue's script here, it adeptly follows its predecessors, but more than that, it introduces several interesting characters of its own. Surprisingly smart, very darkly witty moments are strewn here. Jeff Fahey, I think, is terrific as Dwayne Duke, very memorable as the motel's new clerk, sleazy but very savvy, providing a worthy foil for Norman's oft-naive ways, playing the devil to Diana Scarwick's angel on the opposite sides of Norman's shoulders. I think, unlike its immediate predecessor, Psycho 3, it may fall short of Hitchcock's original in terms of ingeniousness and artistry, but Perkins, I don't think, has anything to apologize for to anybody. There's a great script here, robust direction from Perkins. They were mostly undone by the studio's commercial insistence to copycat horror trends, adding those distasteful elements that mar the attempts to recapture the class of the original. I really wish that I could have seen the original intended cut for this film, but I feel that it is long lost and we'll never see that. It deprives Norman of completing his arc to freedom through this gimmicky, dispiriting ending that absolutely undoes everything that comes before. There's still a lot to like about Psycho 3. It's very nicely shot. That Carter Burwell score is absolutely riveting. I think that all of the scores for the at least the first three Psycho films are terrific. Even though they're completely different from one another, the Psycho series really benefits from great composing. And Burwell certainly sets the tone here. I think, you know, this is a, a film, unfortunately, crippled by the studio that believed in it, but to the point that they felt that they could grab even more dollars by injecting stuff that kind of takes away its specialness. And in the end, I can only give Psycho 3 as much as I really admire and really love so much of the individual parts that are in this film. I can't quite wholeheartedly recommend it to people who are not avowed fans of the series already. And that's why I can only give it two and a half stars out of four. Two and a half stars on my scale means that it had all of the tools and had the talent there to be something more, something more recommendable. But unfortunately, it falls short. And to me, I lay the blame squarely on Universal for its many shortcomings. Because from everything else that appears on the screen, I do think that there's there's something still special about many elements of Psycho 3 that I find very compelling at times. It sometimes transcends its kind of amateurishness into becoming something more. And at the very least, it's its its own entity. It does not copycat the first two films. 
I would call it a guilty pleasure, but I do think that Psycho 3 is genuinely a good film that was undone to a large extent by people who did not understand what a good film that they had in their hands and decided to play for bigger crowds, crowds that did not eventually show up. So two and a half stars is what I give Psycho 3, even though I, I do like it personally a lot more than that rating would reflect. If you have your own thoughts on Psycho 3, and I'm sure that this film runs the gamut from some people who think it's absolutely awful to others who think it's one of the best films, horror films of the 1980s, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website, links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, and my Instagram. But I do think that writing an email to me is the best way to get in touch. You can find all of my contact information at my website, quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. As far as what I'm going to be doing next, I did allude to the fact that there was a Psycho 4 eventually made, and it was made just a few years later in 1990, made for cable television. I think it was made for Showtime. Psycho 4, The Beginning, by the way, but it is a prequel to the original Psycho, and it does bring back Joseph Stefano as a screenwriter. So a lot to talk about there. Psycho 4, The Beginning, for the next episode. Even though it came out in 1990, I'm going to keep it with the films of the 80s because it's very closely related much more to the films of the 80s. I will talk about the 1998 remake on to the 90s and beyond eventually. But until next time, until you hear me again, Once again, thank you for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. (music) 